0: Hello there, welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast, and today on the show I am talking to Sarah Keyworth. Sarah has got funny bones and a succinct and uncomplicated way of letting other people in on them. Um, In this very thoughtful interview, they talk about the point where being saddened by other people's reality meets the irresistible pull of activism. We'll get stuck straight into it soon. Uh, There are 20 minutes of extras available exclusively to the Insiders Club, including what happened when Sarah's therapist found out they were doing material about them. Ooh, that's all available if you're a member of the Insiders Club uh, which you can join at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Now you might already have heard uh, a little short advert at the beginning of this show from yours truly uh, asking for your unmissable com moments. I'm going to explain a little bit more what that's all about in the midpoint but for now let's get stuck into this interview with Sarah Keyworth. Something that I really enjoy about your stand-up is how it is lean. I don't mean lean. It's that it, when you describe yourself as sort of plodding through life, there is a really attractive quality to your stand-up, which is the sort of the simple laying out of an idea.
1: You call it I mean? thick.
0: I'm calling you thick right off the bat.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, but so, it's funny that you're a simpleton. We... Tell me about
0: that. <laughs> do you know what I mean though about the like the like there's it's uncomplicated. I yes. that sounds like I'm calling you stupid. I'm not at all. But do, do you so I mean, do you know that do you can help help me, Sarah, recognise the, no, the quality quality no, you're referring on. to? You
1: go... <laughs> um No, I think um I don't know. I try and I genuinely try and be a bit more um, sophisticated sometimes. Like my the last show I wrote, I was like, "Let's do a let's do a sophisticated show." And then I and then I sat down and thought about it, and I was like, "I'm just going to tell them what's happened in the last couple of years." Like, I just, <laughs> <laughs> let's just catch them up uh, and we'll get sophisticated next year. Um, but I won't because I've I've already started writing jokes that are just dumb as well. So.
0: Well this is it so your the show that you did last year is Lost Boy is that the mm-hmm. title
1: That um, is the title
0: and that was i mean are you you're touring it presumably are you touring it right now I'm touring you, it
1: as we speak
0: where have yeah. you been touring it so when was your last tour show?
1: I was this weekend I was in Glasgow Saturday night Newcastle the night before Okay I'm doing a date at Soho theatre tonight um and then I can't remember where I'm next because I, okay. I don't know where I'm doing. I just know where I've, what I've done.
0: Yes, okay. And are you... Oh, well, I've, I mean, I want to ask you questions about touring now, but let's stick with the content of the show, which really? I've heard, which you sent me via WhatsApp, which no one ever does, so I had to listen to it on my phone. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's totally fine.
1: It's, <laughs> I really all, enjoyed how it. How do other people do it? On email?
0: Yeah, mostly people email it to me. And I could easily have taken it and forwarded it to my own email, but I didn't do that. I listened on my phone and I felt yeah.
1: oh, like... I just, uh,
0: a contemporary I, sort of child
1: that's good um I'm my whole attitude is uh, to, I think for the whole of life is if somebody goes oh do you just just do it like that I'll go oh yeah we can do and even with my phone so if I click share and the first thing it says is because I think we were messaging whatever the first thing it says is do you want to whatsapp it to Stuart Goldsmith I'm like yeah can do let's try that let's <laughs> <And, and laughs> give that a go and it worked and I thought well that's done then isn't it that's um Let's move on, and it's encrypted, so nobody can hear that show.
0: Oh, nice! I didn't realise that. That's exciting. It's secret. So, tell me about your tell me about your Edinburgh show and the assemblage of it. Can we talk about what it's about? Can we talk about the big thing that happens in it? Yes, I, th-
1: that... I think so. Because honestly, I think anybody listening to this podcast um, uh, is not going to. I don't. I don't know. Be grossly offended by are we calling them spoilers? Yeah let's call it well let's just say if you're planning to come and see my show, this episode contains spoilers. So if you're if you've got tickets for the tour and you don't want to know what happens um, and there and it is a spoiler I think because there is a sort of fun surprise uh, then uh, listen to this episode after you've seen it or get over yourself. And thank you so much for booking tickets to my tour.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the show started off as, as you explained at the beginning of the show, as an attempt to to do a fun show.
1: Yeah, I always do. I do, always do serious comedy, which sounds stupid. It's an oxymoron. But my first two shows were. Uh, my first show was about. Um, about, about women and girls and how uh, sort of gender stereotypes and how you can't really escape them in childhood. And then my second show was about my relationship with masculinity and my gender identity and all that. And um, and then when I was writing my third show, I was like, I just want to... I didn't know what to do. Well, this was in 2020, so it was fresh off the back of that second show. I didn't know what I wanted it to, to be, and I was like, I'm not going to do another um, show about my gender identity because i think i'd said everything that i knew about myself at that point um i'd put it out there because that was just two shows two years in a row um so i was like well let's just you know let's just make people laugh for a year and then see where we're at after that obviously pandemic hits silly show never existed i'm getting serious again (laughs) Before we
0: move on to it then, just to kind of put you in some context for the more casual listener,
1: mm.
0: um, in your shows about women and masculinity and gender identity, I'm really interested to hear that like, that you felt like you'd said everything you needed to say. Because I think... Go, go on, sorry.
1: So I'd, I'd said everything I, I, I knew about myself in the sense that now my relationship with my gender identity has evolved again, but at that point, I'd kind of arrived at a, at a moment where I was like, "I think, I think I've, I've got what I know, and I need to live my life a bit more to figure out what I what I don't know." <laughs> Does that make any sense? Yeah, I um, think so. Yeah. So at that time, I, I was, I was writing a radio show about gender, and I, and it's interesting because I'm writing the second series of it now. And at the end of that, um, that first series, I said like, I, uh, you know. I, I'm, I'm a masculine woman, my pronouns are she, her, but I also like to be called a boy or whatever, all this stuff. Like, I like it when, you know, my partner sometimes says, oh, he, he's a good lad, all this stuff. Like, I sort of said that. Uh, whereas now, I, I, I have said publicly that I identify as non-binary and... Uh, that's those things aren't necessarily true anymore, and my understanding of gender identity has changed and my experiences have changed, um, in the space of two years, because that came out at the end of twenty twenty. So it was just like writing a show at the start of twenty twenty. That was those all those all those things were true, and I believed them to be true, and I'd kind of said that. Gotcha. OK.
0: And is there something... I feel like you and I had an exchange briefly when we saw each other at, like, a preview. Or I can't remember I can't remember where it came up, but I wondered whether... And forgive me if this is something I'm inferring rather than something you had implied, but I got the sense that you didn't want to um, uh, kind of be known as a comedian who focuses on gender identity. And you were sort of in danger of being known as that.
1: I think that... Um... I think that that anybody who uh is um who is a diversity tick box in terms of being a woman or a person of colour or a queer person, anybody that you would uh like um assume to be like you, you look at a lineup of white men and go, Oh, we need a little bit more we need a little bit of excitement in this. We're we're all in danger, and some people feel the pressure more than others, of um of almost being cornered into being the representative of that thing. The comedy industry, um, especially like the television industry, I think it likes to know what it's going to get. Even if people are being themselves, I think it likes people to fall into pretty recognisable characters. Mm -hmm. So you'll have your sort of classic Northern guy. Uh, You might have your sort of camp man. Um, Like, a heightened feminine woman, like a Catherine Ryan kind of thing. And people. I think people find them very comforting. But as a comedian, as being just an individual human being, Catherine Ryan can and does talk about anything that she wants, and she's amazing at it. And I think you have to be careful to not fall into that trap. Like, sometimes I feel it with my audiences where I get worried. And actually, I'm wrong, I think. I, I, I get worried that they're going to come... Uh, to my shows and hope that I'm going to talk about gay stuff or being queer or being non-binary or even just having short hair. Sometimes I do jokes and I'll mention for a laugh that I've got short hair and I can see the lights of my audience's eyes just explode. They're like, here we fucking go with that. <laughs> She's in. Yes. We all have short hair as well and I'm like yes we can collectively sometimes I'm like yes I'm here and I'm gay and I have short hair and we can all understand that that can be the sort of unmentioned uh context of this whole thing but let's have a chat about something else
0: yes because it must be presumably um uh limiting I guess my assumption would be it would be it could be limiting or tedious for you as a performer for, for any for any performer whose audience feels like they're there to see a certain thing yeah like regardless of your feelings about gender or your gender identity or any of those things sometimes you want to talk about jelly babies
1: absolutely and,
0: and so if and so you need I would guess to and this isn't something I've experienced as a straight white male performer I've got no idea what their expectations of me are and they haven't thought of them and they've they they're probably so kind of implicit that no one's ever said them out loud but I don't ever have to worry that I'm not talking about the stuff they want me to talk about
1: it's kind of I've recently found myself in a weird situation where I'm like if I did fully lean into it and just went full gay like soft butch comedian and all of my stuff and all my content and everything online was like sort of queer orientate. Or, what's that word? It's queer- oriented.
0: Everyone or- always says orientated, but oriented. it's oriented.
1: Yeah, yeah, that sounded weird in my mouth. <laughs> queer oriented. Um, then I could probably like garner more of a following than I have. Like like I think if I really lent to it, into it and I was like, this is my Instagram profile and you know exactly what you're going to get when you come here, which is just... Relentless gay stuff. The gays would come running.
0: <laughs> Relentless actua- gay stuff would be a great name for a show title to test this theory. Yeah,
1: but they'd, <laughs> they'd, they'd go mad for it. But at some stage, you just feel like the, in my opinion, the best comedians of the world are the ones that can. You you know exactly who they are, but they can talk about anything they can do whatever they want they can cover whatever ground they want and you know that per, like you see comedians come out and they'll they'll talk about their partners and you just know you know what gender their partner is or what their life is like and that's that's obviously like profile and status and things like that but i think it's also just that sort of human ability of of being able to make anything funny like i can i can make gay jokes till the cows come home I've got loads of them. But at some stage, I've got to start branching out a little bit.
0: When you say you've got to start branching out, there's plenty of people, as you've mentioned, who don't. So, what is it that's different about either you or your drive or what you want or what you're looking for that gives you that notion that you've got to stop? Because, you know, you know what I mean? There are people who are like, oh, this is a niche. Sweet.
1: I, th- I think I just like to challenge myself a bit more I think that um I think the I don't know at the moment I find cuz I got loads of them I got loads of jokes about looking like a boy and having short hair and being queer and having a girlfriend and all that stuff and they they're fun but um I think they they end up getting a bit repetitive and sometimes things happen for like so um, there's a thing where almost every masculine uh, presenting uh, non-male person, it's like it sort of sweeps across the genre of like female and non-binary, the genre, am I calling that a genre? <laughs> um, uh, we've, we've all got a story of, of, of being in a bathroom and being misgendered or having a sort of hostile experience in a bathroom. And the reason that we all have those stories is because that that happens to us on a on a daily basis, right? Like I, I can't go into a public toilet without wondering whether or not somebody's going to say something to me and, or just a slight sort of, um, even if it's a little sort of microaggression of just like checking the sign on the toilet, making sure like, it's not even a microaggression, it's just a confusion. Like, I don't know. And there's always something like I, I make a little bit of a scene when I go in a, in a, in a public toilet. Um, and so you're like, well, well, we should this is one of the weirdest experiences that you could have. We should obviously talk about it on stage because it's so strange. Um, but everybody's got these stories and I've got I've got multiple of those stories that I could tell on stage. Some of them I do tell on stage. Um, but then recently something happened uh, that flipped it so nicely that I was like, I'm going to have to just tell this story because it's so I, it made me laugh so much, and it was so not what I thought it was going to be. Um, where I went on a I went on a night out with my two friends who were in a double act called Shelf, Ruby and Rachel.
0: I know those guys, cool guys.
1: Uh, and we all have a similar vibe, <laughs> um, uh, we, like 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 little boys on a school trip, like kind of. <laughs> um, and we were we were in this this club. After I, it was when I was doing my Soho show, so we went out and we're all um, there with a bunch of other people. I went into the bathroom. There was a toilet attendant in the ladies' bathroom, and she told me I was in the wrong bathroom. And I was like, "I'm not." Um, and then I started chatting to. her. I was quite drunk. Um, I started chatting to her. Is that kind of night where you're like um, talking to anybody and everybody? And uh, I sort of got to know. Her name was Beatrice. She's very lovely. I spent ten pounds on a lollipop. That's the. That's the, you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> those nights. Um, yeah. And then I went back to my friends and then a bit later, Rachel came over to me, tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, have you been to the toilet in here yet? Because the woman in there just told me I was in the wrong bathroom. And I was like, no, you come with me. <laughs> so we went back to Beatrice and I was like, Beatrice, this is my friend. And then she was like, okay, darling. like She's obviously just like, I don't know what's going on, but it's fine. And then we were about to leave, and I turned back, and I was like, "Actually, Beatrice, you should know, there is one more." (laughs) (laughs) And apparently, shortly after, Ruby went to the bathroom, and Beatrice just went, "It's okay, darling. Your friends already told me." (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, "That's the best. That's the best story of that I've ever experienced." Where she just immediately got on board, and then was just quite hilarious about it. She was like, "I don't know what this is. I don't know what's going on, but fine." Sure,
0: yeah, and that's that's, and you say that as an example of. I mean, what we were talking about before is that there can be. It almost becomes a theme. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you said you said genre about something different there, but it almost becomes like um, you could easily have a night. I guess is the suggestion where lots of male-presenting non-male people mm-hmm. uh, have have stories about it, just bathroom stories. Yeah, and and the and there's a risk in that is, I think, what you were suggesting. that? that
1: oh, I don't know. I mean, it, maybe it shouldn't bother me, but it's that thing of like, oh, you know, why why do you always talk about this? Or why can't you talk about anything else? Um, that I sometimes have had on, like, like comments and things of people saying like, oh, we get it, you're gay, all this stuff. But I think mm-hmm. anybody, this is what I said, of anybody um, who is not, um, like, and I hate being like, anybody who's not a straight white man, because it feels like that's just, such, those words are so easily on the tip of everyone's tongue. Uh, but, um, I think it's true. Anybody who's not a straight white man, uh, has that level to them quite often of like, why do you always talk about being black? Why do you always talk about being sure. a woman? Why do you always talk about being gay? And it's like, well, because, because I am, and that's an anomaly in this world. That's not the, that's not the, the assumed thing that I am. And therefore, people interact with me in strange ways. So, like, like black people do material about being ha- having sort of racist experiences or strange interactions with white people because they're so bizarre. They're often so funny. And also, it's cathartic. It's cathartic to go, hey, let me tell you about this thing that I experienced. And then all of the other people who have had those experiences sit in the audience and go, oh, my God, yeah, I've been there. And um, so, like, but I I think I, listen, I, I, I ignore it to a point and then I go, yeah, I think maybe I am being slightly lazy with my writing.
0: So this is Sarah. Tremendous fun having them on the show. And I'm really grateful for such a thoughtful interview. This had a a really thoughtful kind of a pace to it, which I'm very grateful for because we're talking about some pretty big stuff here. A reminder that there are 20 minutes of extras available to you if you're in the Insiders Club, which you can join at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, uh, including when Sarah's therapist found out they were doing material about them. And we also learn why Sarah is a little old man at heart. Lots more coming up, including an exploration of Sarah's creative partnership with the late, great Paul Byrne and why they'd love to have a pint with J.K. Rowling. All of that coming up soon. Um, A little shout-out for Sarah's show in March. Sarah's on tour at the moment, and uh, they're going to be at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London on the 19th of March, which is a massive space, which I'm sure they'll sell out, so get in quick. Um, They're also on tour now, I think, for the rest of November, um, and I suspect they've got a break in uh, December and January. Before they come back, we're in February and March, all over the rest of the nation. So you can get your tickets for that at sarahkeyworth.co.uk slash gigs. Now, uh, oh, and I tell you something I often forget to do is to suggest you follow people's social. So Sarah is on Instagram at Sarah underscore Keyworth and Twitter at Sarah K Comedy. Now to something slightly different. Okay, ready? I admit it, I am writing a book. I'm twenty-two thousand. Am I? I can see it in front of me now. I think I'm just shy of twenty-one thousand words. I've skived my word limit. No, I haven't skived it, but I am one of my 37 words off my off twenty-two thousand words, which would represent my word limit for today. If you're writing anything, use Scrivener. Holy shit, it's great. I'm going to pay for it. That's how much I like it. Um, and uh, I'm now, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. There's no way I'm going to trash these twenty-two thousand words. Having nearly twenty-two thousand words. Having not done something with them so there we go i now publicly commit to i publicly commit and admit to having been writing a book for a little while and what i would love from you if you're able to and i'm going to be nakedly grasping about this i'm currently naked currently grasping um I don't want to forget all of those brilliant bits from ComCom that, uh, that should be in the book. And if I just go to the results page here, so a few kind listeners have sent in their, they've, they've kind of clicked on this thing, which I'll, which is available, as you heard at the beginning, from comedianscomedian.com slash unmissable and filled in the form. And I tell you what, 20,000 words in, it has come just at the right time when I've got, A sort of an order and a shape and loads of writing and what have you. And what I'm doing is taking quotes from the podcast, kind of reflecting on them and responding to them and feeding that into uh, a book which will be the book of the podcast, the book of my resilient stuff, sort of a self-help manual, definitely a how-to-do comedy guide from a really unusual angle. There's everything to play for here. But, um, but these few people who have, uh, have sent in their suggestions, like, how could I have forgotten the, the, the Chris Addison bit about there being two doors to the theatre? The warm, wine-swilling, happy crowd, or you in the grimy sandbags and ropes at the back. You can't ever see yourself from the audience's perspective. You'll only see the things falling apart and held together with gaffer tape. But that's not what your audience are seeing. I, if I hadn't have been reminded about it, I can't keep 10 years worth of shows, 600 plus hours of shows in my head. I need your help to remind me of these things so that I could write about them, reflect on them and fill the book with all of your favourite unmissable bits. Now, the smarter among you. I mean, when I first launched this as a concept, uh, comedian Ollie Horn, friend of the show, friend of mine, um, texted me and was like, crowdsourcing the uh, writing of your book is Vintage Goldsmith. And I see his point, but I want to be upfront about it. I'm not crowdsourcing the writing of the book. I'm not using anyone's writing. I just want you to, to just remind me, hey, that's a good bit. Do something with that. That's a good bit. What about the bit when uh, Robert Popper says, uh, Robert Popper says, I always take a deep breath and say, here we go. I'm not pushy, but I think I won't get this opportunity again. So I have to find an odd way to get to that thing. Really inspiring. Or what about the bit when Jesse Cave said, doing shows is a way of recording. I was here. I keep a diary to record something of each day to have the day on record. Seeing it on paper made me feel better like a form of therapy. This is the stuff that should be Cre- this is the stuff that should be the little platforms that I need to jump from one to the other to say, look, this is what the podcast is. And these, my responses to and reflections on these things will form kind of the, the rolling out of the big Comedians Comedian Podcast toolkit as to what your comedy can be, what it, how it can improve, uh, what your creativity can be, how you can solve problems, all of that stuff. So... With that in mind, kindly, if you have a favourite moment, you don't need to sort of. I mean, there's. I have cheekily asked you to <laughs> to tell me what time the moment occurs if you happen to be listening to it, um, because that's useful for me because I'll obviously need to go back and work out all of the um, the individual, uh, like like really transcribe it perfectly and make sure it's a, a, an accurate transcription. All of that stuff. You don't need to do that. You could literally jump on the form and go. You know the Paul Sinha bit where he talked about writing in his car. That was good. Anything like that would be so useful for me, specifically at this stage of the process. So if you would like to get involved with that, go to comedianscomedian.com slash unmissable. And I think I can commit at this stage with the low volume of people who've turned out to personally replying and thanking all of you. I don't think that's unreasonable. So let's get back to this episode with Sarah Keyworth. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Have you been to drama school or did you study drama?
1: I studied drama, yeah. Gotcha.
0: So, for people who don't know what catharsis is, I don't know if I can remember the technical definition from my own drama studies days, but the kind of the the sort of um, uh, like the healing release of tension.
1: Well, yeah, but I mean, it's cathartic to, uh, as in, it's cathartic to talk about. Like if, when I when I say that, it's like um, yeah, I guess it is the the healing. It just uh, it gets it out of your head. Yeah. And, every, and everybody in the room is going, oh, my God. Yeah. Then you feel better about it.
0: And how much I'm just the question I was leading on to is with if we're talking about an element of catharsis and the kind of the the desire to be to get it out of your head, like how much? And I'm asking sort of you personally, how much of a problem is it? It's obviously something that's prevalent and your nature on stage is very in control you don't seem to, it's not that you don't struggle, but your stories aren't kind of infused with, and this is a huge problem for me in the way that some people's are. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Like you seem pretty much like you, you're you pretty comfortable navigating that stuff in your life uh, on, the, on the basis of what, sort of what I've seen from your stand-up. And I wonder to what extent that's because you're quite a centred person that can cope with these kind of multiple tricky situations or or is there a kind of is it more painful or exhausting or have you than that but the fact of your ability to talk about it on stage there's like there's so much catharsis in talking about it that you cope with it
1: well I mean I know I say I do quite serious shows but I I I do firmly feel like I find it very uncomfortable if we're ever like too far away from a laugh when I'm doing a stand-up show Um, and I think I have made quite serious points in my previous shows where I've said, you know, this is, this is really painful. Mm. This is a difficult, difficult experience. Um, honestly, some days I find it really exhausting. I find it incredibly exhausting and, and incredibly painful. And, um, I think recently I've, um, I've been finding it quite, sort of, I don't know, second-hand painful or um, I've been feeling very sad for for people who have it worse than me in that I cannot express how much of a privilege it is to be a non-binary person who is permitted to use a, a, a woman's bathroom like in in the sense that uh I can kind of if i had if I had to argue my right to be in a women's bathroom, I have my my kind of tickets in biologically um, which means that I'm slightly more protected. I felt very uncomfortable and, and very threatened in women's bathrooms um but uh, nobody's ever trying to, no nobody when they figure out what is actually going on with me is going and you should then go into a man's bathroom um and so when i feel those th- things and i always come ha- i've always so far come out unharmed uh, physically unharmed um I've always felt a bit shaken or a bit upset, but also just incredibly um, saddened by the reality of that just not being the case for other people. Hmm. But, like, n- nobody at the Glee Club is going to laugh if I say that.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and well, I this think this is it. Go on. And I think that um, I really, really, truly believe in the power of comedy... In um, in in people understanding things, which is why I think you know, Jordan Gray going on Friday Night Live, um, recently. You know, and and she's selling out shows, and she sold out her Soho theatre run, and she was nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Award and things like that. And and people who might not necessarily go and see a trans woman are now seeing a trans woman do comedy, and it means that like other people who might come out as trans will get to go, you know, like Jordan Gray, who we we watched on the telly um, and have that. And and I just, I I don't think that comedy has to really hit you over the head with a point. I don't have to stand up on stage and go, you know, I'm making these jokes about being harassed in toilets, but actually the reality of the situation is, is that it's really, really awful for lots of people and people get physically assaulted and attacked and things like, I, I hope that like maybe me just talking about it on stage means that somebody somewhere might walk into a bathroom, see somebody who looks a bit like me, and and go, "Oh, that's a that's a bit like Sarah Keyworth." I won't I won't say anything because I don't really know. Yeah, but generally, I think those people probably are the people that are harassing people in bathrooms. So maybe not. But yeah, um, but I, I
0: yeah I see your point, which it's it's sort of like I suppose it's the relationship between whether you whether the good that you are doing in the world has to come from material that you're doing or simply the fact of you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I um I've talked about this quite a bit and I can't remember if it was on a podcast or in a therapy session. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, welcome to a bit of one and a bit of another.
1: Um, and it's and it I, I kind of um I feel a bit strange saying it as well because it makes it sound like I'm it's like an odd brag. Um, but when I started doing stand-up, I was 21 and I was um, identifying as this sort of long-haired, uh, attempting to be femme, uh, presenting lesbian, as identifying as a lesbian who um, who fully believed that the uh, a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of lesbian representation in stand-up comedy had been done and, and just sort of gay rights been done already so I was coming in in the sort of like the heyday of queer people being sort of welcomed in a bit more because when I started doing stand-up um like Jen Brister, Zoe Lyons, Susie Ruffle, all these amazing comedians were gigging and they weren't struggling to get gigs and I was just coming in off the back of that and um and I never, I never got into comedy to be like I want to be uh, an activist or at the forefront of a movement or a representative of um any any group or anything like, like that. That's not what I um I'm 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 not much I'm not a leader. I, and I have no particular desire to be a, a leader in any way. Um but now I do identify as non binary and um I'm a representative of of a, of a group that is um, in a quite an inflammatory debate, and I'm very fortunate in that I'm comfortable with my body in lots of ways, and I'm not seeking healthcare for, for certain things, and I, I, you know, I'm just fortunate in that I'm very flat-chested and thin, and I, hmm. I look pretty masculine in the clothes that I wear um so I can kind of achieve an aesthetic that suits me but um I I, I recorded an episode of Casters countdown um that I think probably won't come out until next year but but on it I, I do a bit about identifying as non-binary and pronouns and um, and, and actually a bit about um a little bit about something that happened in a bathroom, and then something that happened on Twitter. Um, and I really was in two minds about whether or not I wanted to do it, and I was really worried about it because I was like, oh, Am I just gonna get so much shit for this? Like, when it comes out, I, I don't know what's gonna happen. And then I have to have this little sort of chat with myself, which is like, You, you, you have, you have to, you can't not, um. We well, cannot, but what? What? So, I am just not going to go out and be myself. We're just going to pretend to be something else. Um, and I don't. Know, I've done it on other other stuff. I went on. I went on celebrity coach trip a couple of years ago, and one of the big reasons I nearly turned it down was because of the amount of swimming we'd have to do. And I was on with these I was with Vicky Patterson from Geordie Shore and some of the girls from Love Island and all this stuff. And they, I knew that they would be in sort of bikinis and things like that. And I was like, well, I, I would wear a sports bra and a pair of swimming shorts. And do I want to be that, that weirdo on the end in the sports bra and swimming shorts? And I was like, well, when I was a kid, if I happened to be watching a reality TV show like Coach Trip and I saw somebody that looks like me, swimming on the beach with all these other people wearing a sports bra and swimming shorts then at least that would give me a little inkling of other people like me out there in the world and a bit of like of a sense that I'm um not just completely mental (laughs) I think the the point I'm um I keep getting stuck on that that I got quite upset about recently was that um I'd love to just go on Catster's countdown and do a silly, a silly bit about something silly. Um, that's what I'd. That's what I'd like to do. That's why I got into comedy is to make people laugh. I didn't get into comedy to do jokes about being non-binary or you know, you know I didn't get into comedy to sort of educate or change people's minds or try and mm. um, uh, try and represent anybody. That's that's I, I, That's not when I was uh, sixteen years old and dreamed of being a stand-up. I wasn't dreaming of being an activist. I was just dreaming of making people laugh, literally just standing up on stage. I used to go and watch... I loved watching Russell Howard. Go and watch Russell Howard live all the time. And I just wanted to make people laugh in the way that he made people laugh. And I could do that. But people are always going to... like if Looking like this, people are always going to come and watch me and go, what what we need to some explanation as to what what you are. And, um, and I've, yeah, I find it. Um, I'm writing this second series of this radio show. And as I said, the first series came out at the end of 2020. So I wrote, but, um, it was already written, but obviously we were going to record it. And there was a bit of complication about whether or not we're going to record it live. And in the end we did it in the radio theater, but we had an audience on zoom, which was surprisingly fun. Um, but, it was written at the start of twenty twenty and when I wrote it I felt as though I was sort of preaching to the congregation. It was a very personal show, but it was about, you know, this is this is some explanations about, you know, trans people, non binary people, how we feel about the world, how, you know, how my childhood was and um where these gender stereotypes come from and why they are um why they're being sort of like unpicked and debunked and things like that but it very much felt like i was talking about a subject that was just progressively moving forward and then um i'm loathed to mention her name but i do think that she sparked quite a significant movement mid 2020 during the lockdowns um and it's i find it quite surprising to think about because it's only 2 years ago uh, mid during the lockdowns is when jk rowling first started sort of relentlessly tweeting about gender that was my first memory of her putting stuff out. Um, and in the two years since then, there is now this, this just really um, un- unpleasant, quite um, inflammatory uh, debate. And so now I'm writing a second series of a show with the backdrop of that. And there's a, I feel a lot of responsibility and pressure to say the right things in this show.
0: Battle lines are kind of drawn now in a way that they weren't then. Yeah. Do you think? But like around like it, around me. Yeah.
1: And I, I'm I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a battler. I'm a I'm a let's all get on kind of guy. But I, I have this lived experience where I know exactly what it's like, and you can, I don't think that you can really understand it unless you've lived it and there are people with family members who've experienced it who I think can have empathy towards it but I don't think you can really understand and this is the problem with this argument is that you you can't understand how strange it feels to not identify with the gender that everybody is telling you is you you have you're you're born with like because people go, oh, it's just, you know, it's stereotypes. You don't have to... There's a recent thing that happened with Eddie Izzard, where he, which was, um, uh, he said uh, that he has a sort of boy mode and a girl mode and his his girl mode ends when he takes off his heels, which I think was probably, I haven't read the full interview, but it was just this kind of unfortunate phrasing because everyone's going, well, women aren't, you know, broken down. Women aren't just heels, which is absolutely yeah. true. Um but and, and that's the argument that people say, where it's like you, you don't have to to be really womanly. You don't have to have long hair. You don't. But you and people go, but like doesn't mean you're not a woman. But it is deeper than that. It's it runs it runs deeper than that. When people call me and my girlfriend ladies, or like I've just been in Glasgow and we got girls the whole weekend, it doesn't make any sense to me when somebody says that i turned to my girlfriend because the taxi driver said it and i wasn't upset or anything but i was like do you think i look like a girl like 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 with no uncertain terms if i was in the back of your car would you not hesitate to call me a girl or would there at least be a because because I, I also get caught call- was getting called sir just as much over the weekend so i'm like it's it's so strange to me that somebody would go in with that amount of confidence and I would love, do you know what, I think most, most non-binary and trans people would absolutely love to not give a fuck about how they were being caught. I would love to identify with every bit of my body. I'd love for this to make sense to me. That would, because cause I'm, I'm not a battler, I'm not a fighter. I, my whole life I've just wanted to be like... Like like everybody else, I've wanted things to make sense for me, and this is why this argument is so inflamed. Because it's it, it, when you break it down to such simple terms, where people go, oh, you know, you don't have to wear heels; you're still a woman." Or putting on heels doesn't make you a woman, or this or that. Or whatever. It's not. It's not obviously. It's not about high heel shoes. And I, j- I just think you ca- you cannot know how alien it feels to to grow up. And and this is the thing that I kind of want to try and communicate in the second series of this radio show is that if you don't, if you live your entire life not really thinking about your gender, you're a cis man, you identify as a cis man, being male makes sense to you. You don't realise how many times a day your gender is affirmed to you. Just walking past people in the street, you, know, so, you, know, somebody, you buy something off someone and they go, Oh thanks, sir, have a good day, sir. Like, it happens on such a small level all day long. And if you don't care and you don't notice it, that must be so peaceful. But if you do, if it doesn't make sense to you, it's so exhausting. And it just, it's just frustrating. Like, I remember it as a kid. I, I have a memory, and it's, I think people think I'm making this up. I have a memory of being a small child, and my brother and our next-door neighbours, we're in our next-door neighbor's garden, my brother and our next-door neighbours are all playing, they're all running around playing, and I'm sat on my mum's lap, and I'm crying, and I'm saying, I want to be a boy, make me a boy. And she's going, darling, I don't know what to do, I can't make you a boy. And she's trying to comfort me. She's going, I can't make you a boy. I can't. And I'm so devastated. And I have absolutely no idea what I wanted to really be different in that moment. Other than that, I didn't want to be a girl.
0: <laughs> Do you feel that as much as battle lines are being drawn and you're not a battler, and even, I suppose, even to kind of... Like what you're describing about the need to speak, the the kind of the um, the what's the word, um, the responsibility to say something. Like even to describe that as like, oh, I guess that's you're reluctant to do that. Even that then puts you in the frame of someone who feels like they should do that, and reluctance to do it is a, a you know, it, that that then becomes an issue or a failing or something like that. I'm I'm just really fascinated by. <sighs> And even, even now, hearing myself say, I'm fascinated by this. What an interesting thing that you're living and struggling yeah. with. I'm sorry to pontificate about it. I don't mean to. Um, but the extent to which... I think what's really interesting is the extent to which... You as a person, you know yourself in as much as you know you're not a battler. Mm. But you also know, like, not naturally. You don't. You don't rub your hands together with glee at the at the possibility of an argument. Great, an opportunity yeah. to win in the way that a lot of comics do. Some people, mm. more outspoken comics, perhaps than yourself, they're like, great, I'm gonna roll up my sleeves, and get stuck into some internet comments. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I, there are people like that. I don't understand the mentality at all. I've never been forced into that position, or i mean incredibly infrequently. Of of kind of coming over that almost that um, the the summit of going look there is I can't not say something now mm. like you're saying about doing doing Cats Does Countdown and doing that material and thinking should I not and going well who am I if I don't yeah and I think that's something that is never afforded or I you don't you don't see I mean you don't see any nuance in online arguments but one of the nuances you don't see is people saying well this you know angry bigots thinking to themselves, well, this person that's arguing with me, maybe they'd rather not be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... that's. I mean, I find the conversations online pointless. They're completely pointless. Um, and my firm belief about, like, a lot of the stuff with gender is that most people who don't care to um, understand or or it makes them angry or it makes them confused. Uh, just have no personal lived experience with somebody who might be going through this, mm. um, and they think it's like a weird, uh, like a fad, or like like stretching ears. Do you remember that? Um,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a great example of a yeah. fad. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, and and I I'd love it. I'd like to have a pint with J.K. Rowling. Just to, just to like, take it down on a level. Maybe it would be a complete mistake. Maybe it would be like, oh, no, you're just mean. You're just unkind. But, like, I'm... I, I, I was a big fan of hers. I think, you know, my generation loved the books that she wrote. And it's not just about her. There's so many other... Women, but she is the figurehead. She's the she's the um she's leading the, the sort of battle, which is why I, I find her and, and she's very smart. She's very intellectual. Um, and that's that's also a bit of a difficulty with these these debates is that we're not dealing with you know the sort of the debate about racism is that like there's a very clear uh, wrong side and a very clear right mm-hmm. side. Um, whereas I don't want women to feel unsafe. In, in women only spaces, I just think that trans women have a right to feel safe in women's spaces because they're women too. Um, and I, I I think I think if these debates were not happening on, social media if they weren't having an internet and they and they also weren't happening in a sort of gladiatorial forum where you know somebody like jk rowling slams somebody and then everyone jumps on it and goes well done that's hilarious that what a fucking good response if they were just happening in quiet rooms then the human side of it would would come out like you see people arguing and you're like you're pro- probably too very like Normal human beings having such an unpleasant conversation hidden behind your computers about something that is about safety on both sides. We want to be safe. We want to be safe. So, like, like I think there's there is a, there's a solution to making everybody feel safe. And and there are times when I just think. When I, with with this first radio show I always said like I, I want to make it the kind of I don't want to be cruel I don't want it to be like with all of my comedy about gender I don't want it to be like here's the situation and if you don't understand this you're a horrible bigot I want to you know I say explicitly I say I know that this stuff is confusing and if you've lived your whole life thinking men are men and women are women and then somebody turns around and goes oh actually in reality the the, the sky is not blue and the grass is not green and you are an idiot for thinking those things, then of course you're going to get upset and you're going to get defensive. So why not just talk kindly? Oh, man, what a lame thing to say. What a lame... I just think we need to be kind to each other.
0: With your radio series at the moment... Mm. Um, what are you, what sort of, what shape is it in right now? It doesn't... In like, how many words have you got? How many episodes or titles? It doesn't like, exist. Where are you in I've it? got four okay.
1: episode outlines. I'm just at the start of writing it. Um, okay. I've got four episode outlines, tentative episode outlines. Um, and I'm just, I'm so scared. <laughs> I'm scared I'm scared of writing it because you, yeah, I want it to be um, just as funny as the first series. I want it to be as lighthearted as the first series. Uh, but there's there's stuff that I think needs to. T- it's it's a bit weightier than it was. It's gonna have to. It's gonna have to be. And there are probably gonna have to be more moments that aren't particularly gag heavy, um, but just make some astute points that I'll um, I'll get someone else to write. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, on the subject, and I realise that's a joke. But on the yeah. subject of collaboration. Um, we started off by kind of establishing the 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 last two, uh, your first two shows rather, mm. and the point of going into the third one. Obviously, you wrote those shows with, or directed by, or co. No, I mean, we never never says co-written in comedy, but kind of bounced off, yeah, orchestrated somehow, fizzed with Paul Byrne.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I always I I keep saying we just we made the shows together because cause he. He was, yeah, he was, he was the, the sounding board. He was, he was somebody I would sit and write with. He'd never, um, he'd never like go away and write jokes on his own, but I'd, I'd sit with him and we'd work out jokes together. Um, I think people are very defensive about saying that they write with people in comedy. Um, but can you imagine how dog shit all comedy would be if we had to just go away and do it on our own?
0: <laughs> like it's a it's a funny one there are there's different there's different schools of thought aren't there I remember encountering two comics one very famous the other one brilliant but not famous kind of writing in a cafe in soho I was there to do some writing mm. and they were there to do some writing and they were kind of I noticed them and they were laughing and scribbling stuff and just it just looked like the best time ever
1: it's so fun when you get the right person and and the sort of chemistry is there and the sense of humor and and the friendship and stuff it's it doesn't feel like work at all and that's what it was like with with paul and paul directed lots of people um and i think he was the same for everyone as well he was just such a magnificent person and 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 he laughed at everything even though, if it wasn't funny and he was also i think i think we'd all agree everyone who worked with him he was funnier than all of us um and and he had no ego about any of it either so Anything he said was just ours to take. Um, and it was so fun. That's, that's I haven't... I've written with other people, I've got friends I write with and stuff, and you have such a great time, but I think there's, there's something about that connection with him that I haven't quite discovered since with anybody else. Um, and maybe it's just because it's that sort of replacing your goldfish thing of, like, I'm not quite open to it just yet. Um, but, like, I loved writing shows with him the best thing about having that is that I have all of these voice notes on my phone from days where we would just sit and talk like hours of voice notes of he, he and I trying to write jokes oh he died Have we mentioned that
0: <laughs> I don't know I mean I think we've been talking about him in the past but <laughs> yeah he did die
1: yeah he did yeah. he passed away he passed away and that's what my third show is about. So the silly—that's why the shit silly show never existed. Um, what a great way to reveal that on this podcast. That is, that's, that's pretty much how I reveal it in the show as well. Uh, just,
0: well, they, I mean, you—the first joke you uh, have in reference to his death is an excellent joke, which I won't spoil here. But um, like. The or the introduction, yeah. of his passing is is beautifully, really beautifully done. Never
1: gets a laugh, <laughs> no, <laughs> does it not? No, <laughs> no, it never gets a laugh. But I do it every time. Um, but like, yeah. So I'm I'm uh, my my third show was a, and and this is the thing about comedy being cathartic. I, I say it in the show. I didn't know how to. So he he passed away in February, but he made a real drama out of it. Um, so he, um, he was sick for pretty much the whole of the winter. Well, like November through um, February. Um, he was sort of in and out of hospital and then looking like everything was going to be fine and then not, and then fine. And but I won't go into too much detail about that. But, um, but I think I... Didn't I didn't think he was going to die when he did um, and so it was sort of a strange bolt out of the blue in a way, even though I kind of had a lot of prior warning um, and I'd, leading up to because when he did die he died quite suddenly and leading up to it, I think I, like one of the last texts I sent him was like, you know let me know if you're up for it and we can do some, some work like I'd love to, but like Um, And I'd only seen him, like, the week before because I was, like, going over a lot during that time. And so then I just had no idea what I was going to do or what I was going to write about and how I could possibly find anything funny again. Um, And then I started... Because I had already committed to writing a show and doing Edinburgh. And it was the first Edinburgh post-pandemic, so it felt like it was not one to miss... Um, and eventually, it just got to the point where I said to Adam, who directed this show, "I think the only thing I'm I can do to, to sort of pull myself out of this is is write about that. Is write about the fact that I'm grieving, and I'm trying to be a stand-up that's grieving, and that's hmm. kind of tragic, isn't it? Like it's funny and it's so, like the we have I, we have one of the worst jobs to do when you're grieving. I think." like well maybe not too bad if if somebody passes away that's not directly linked to the comedy cuz then it's like a little respite mm. but i like i was on stage only a few days cuz i only a few days after he passed away cuz i was doing like our shows and i was doing material that he and i wrote together <laughs> mm. And I was trying not to think about him whilst, like, literally speaking words that he once spoke to me. Hmm. Um, So it's kind of... February was a dark time.
0: How did you... Like, there's a thing that people often say about comedy, which is, like, don't do the stuff... Don't talk about a thing until you're over it. And obviously you're talking about him... In the throes of your grief, really. Yeah. Through through, as you mentioned, the combination of kind of Edinburgh factors, and this is all you can write about.
1: I, I don't know. I don't know whether it was the right thing to do or not. Um, well, I do. I do actually. I think it was it, it was the only way I could. Like, I literally, I could couldn't, and it was interesting because I was talking to Angela Barnes about this because her friend passed away. Phil yeah. passed away last year as well i think actually mm-hmm. um and so we were in edinburgh doing a show one after the other and we were both doing shows about our friend losing friend so it was a real um it was a real depressing double bill in the cabaret bar in edinburgh um <laughs> but she was saying the same thing where it's literally like there was the, it it would have felt um completely bizarre to to do a show about anything else, when you're trying to do a show about like, you know, you've been away for two years, there's been a pandemic, all this stuff has changed in your life. But like, losing Paul was probably one of the most defining moments of my life to date. And I don't, if I hadn't written about it, I don't think I would have done a show. Hmm. I don't think I, or I would have written a really unfunny show
0: had you lost people before
1: Uh, well yeah I like grandparents I talk about this I talk about this on stage Um, my grandmother passed away when I was like 14 Uh, but that was I think this one was my this is my first big death Hmm. not to brag but um
0: I my relationship with Paul was very friendly, and I would only ever really see him at Edinburgh. Apart from, I think I I, I saw him at an Ed, I saw him at the Edinburgh that didn't happen. I saw him at the at uh, I'm sure I saw him the
1: t- the twenty twenty one Edinburgh the twenty
0: twenty one Yeah, you might one. have done. I saw him there in the dome, and I think before that, the last time I'd seen him was. Um, Uh, at a Pearl Jam gig Mm, (laughs) at Milton Keynes Bowl. That checks out. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Um, But uh, for me, it was one of those, one of those, as if this is a thing I've encountered before, I haven't really, but the way in which when you have festival friends... Who are suddenly not there anymore? Because and that was a thing that the pandemic obviously exacerbated. Because suddenly there's no festival, so those those annual check ins where you see someone, or I've got I've got buddies from other countries who will come to Edinburgh every other year or so, yeah. you know, and and so that's the only time you ever see them, and then you plug back in and have the that iteration of your friendship. And it was an extraordinary feeling to find out that Paul had died. Yeah, because it was such a like it it's just such an unusual and it seemed to happen in uh, towards the tail end of a big spate of comedy deaths of deaths important to the comedy industry that really was like holy shit I mean I know it's you know
1: yeah yeah it was I mean I feel um, incredibly lucky in that I'm not really sure how or why I don't know really Um, because the most tragic thing about Not the most tragic thing, but one of the tragic things about the timing of Paul passing away was that so many people, he was such a beloved person. Like, you know, I think, as you've just said, you didn't know him very well, but um, everybody I've ever talked to, well, most people I've talked to about Paul would go, Oh, you know, like we had the best time at Glastonbury with the best time in Edinburgh or this Pearl Jam concert or like he, um, I think the most special thing about him was that he would talk to anyone at length about anything and he would make them feel like, like he cared because he did care. He was so interested in everybody and he loved people and it didn't, he was never one of those people that was sat in a bar in Edinburgh looking over your shoulder thinking, is there somebody else more important or more interesting to talk to? He was just in that moment with whoever he was with. Um, and I think a lot of people were so heartbroken but because of the time, because they just didn't get to see him or like lost touch and the pandemic or people living abroad and things like that. And, um, and I through, it's, it's just such a special thing. And I'm not the best at like keeping up with people. I get, um, I'm all over the place with communication. I just forget to text and things like that. I'm one of those people that, like, I care so much about everybody around me, but I get useless with texting. And for some reason, in the whole of 2021, I was keeping regular contact with Paul and I was going over to his house. And I think maybe towards the latter end of the year, something in me was intuiting that some, that it wasn't, gonna end well but like so i saw him only a couple of weeks before he died but i was talking to him a lot and we were in touch and i feel so lucky that 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 happened that i felt sort of close to him but it's a it's it's a re, it was a really weird time for that sort of thing and he was a, he was a yeah. lot of people's festival friend yeah which was so when nice. you
0: um you've um You've got a joke in the show about grieving. What's the line about um, uh, grieving? Is like being at a party when everyone's off their face on pills, yeah, and, a, and you've just lost your phone. Yeah. <laughs> you're on a night <laughs> and out. Kind of,
1: you've lost your phone. You're trying to explain that to all your friends, but they're on ecstasy. That's when when you're grieving and, and you're around people that aren't grieving. That's the feeling. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's so true, and that's a line that people have picked up on. And come to me and, and spoken about and said, like, you just put into words. I had the most amazing thing where two people came to see the show at Battersea Arts Centre, and that must have been, I, d- I don't know when. I don't, that might have even been before. Oh no, it would have been, I don't know, maybe April. Hmm. And then they came to see it again at Always Be Comedy at the end of July, just before I took it to Edinburgh. And I got a message from this guy afterwards saying we saw your show back at battersea art center really enjoyed it then but in the time since seeing it then my best friend died and s- watching it again was just so great and that because I think I that ecstasy line was new and he was like that that line has managed to sort of communicate something that I don't think I could put into words um about how, because, you know, I'd say in the show, my girlfriend wasn't grieving, and that dynamic is really difficult, because you're like, you you can't feel it if you're not in it, and as much as you yeah. can empathise and go, this must be horrible, you can't actually ex- like feel, which is good, right? Because hmm. if you can tap into the feelings of grief really authentically all of the time, that would be horrible. It's, you you want to be able to, to leave those feelings behind and only feel them when you're actually experiencing it. Um, But yeah, that's, I think that particular uh, analogy has, has been very useful to people in, in communicating to those people that don't understand what it feels like when they don't understand. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And does that, that experience that comics have where someone gets in touch and says, this was really meaningful to me. Thank you you've articulated a thing. How much of the gig is that to you? Like, you love making people laugh and it feels really good to feel like you've made some sort of mark on people's life or you've helped somehow. Mm. Like, what other kind of elements are there of of why you do comedy? Like, what drives you between those those two obvious ones of the fact of the feeling like you're connecting with people and, and helping and the fact that it is a pleasant thing to be on stage... In front of a crowd who are roaring with laughter, are there other elements to it, or are those the most important? I think one of
1: the best things about doing stand-up that I, that I think we all, a lot of us feel is that moment where you have an observation or a thought. One of the things I love is when yeah, when you have a you have a thought or an observation and you take it to an uh, like an open mic night or a new material night or whatever, and you just say it in its rawest form, and then people go, "Yeah, we know what you mean. Yeah, that is weird. or that is funny." or um and you're like oh okay like I (laughs) I I'm not I'm not wrong in the way that I've interpreted that thing or I love it when you sometimes I have thoughts about things and I'm like I think I might be the only person that thinks that um I I got there's a bit in the show that I think actually strangely works better now than it did. And it's kind of put in with the context of losing Paul. Cause it was a bit that he and I laughed hysterically about together on zoom. <laughs> um, and it's the bit about white pants. Um, and, and yeah. I said it to, uh, the, at the time I said, I think I said it to my girlfriend and I said it to my cousin's girlfriend and they both looked at me like I was an absolute monster um, and the bit is, it, the premise of the bit is that I, I don't wear white pants cause I can't handle the truth. And I think that people that wear white pants are just really, uh, either they've got really clean bombs or they're incredibly brave. Um, and they were like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then suddenly you're like, <laughs> oh, do I, do I just, am I just a, a messy, a messy bomb monster? Um, <laughs> and then uh, and then I started doing it on stage and, and then other people were like no actually I do see what you mean by this and you're like oh that's a relief cuz sometimes stand up can be so exposing in what you think everybody does <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Is is there do you think this is very cod psychology so shrug it off but is there a link between you as a younger person feeling different and feeling unsure about your mm. body and your gender identity, and presumably being aware that people around you didn't yeah. seem to feel like that. Is there a link between that feeling and how satisfying it is to you to reveal a thing that everyone agrees with? I think so.
1: With? I also think... Um, I don't know why my whole life I've always wanted to just be like everyone else. I really wish that I had that kind of like proud, um, outsider thing. Um, but I don't, I really, I've, I've, I've really, I'm in awe of everybody else around me and I want to be able to, to do and, and, and be in the way that they are. And I've always felt like I've found life, um, like quite, uh, (laughs) like quite difficult, um, and sometimes I've been like, I think I might be, I might be a fucking idiot. Um, <laughs> and I've recently, I talk about this in the in the, in my last show about sort of um, sort of uh, having suspicions about this. But I actually recently have been diagnosed with ADHD, um, uh, but inattentive HD which is really annoying. I'm really I'm really annoyed about it because I would prefer to have a bit of the hyperactive side. <laughs> um cuz i i feel like inattentive HD is just uh, adhd is just sort of like i'm i'm quietly falling apart in the corner <laughs> 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 and i and i'm not even i don't even want the attention enough to point it out to anyone else so i'm just sort of like um stressed and disorganized and i'm saying i'm i'm not telling anyone um and i think i think i just feel such relief now talking to other people about things like that, where I'm like, oh, it's not necessarily my fault that I left my PE kit on the bus every Mm. other week. And Mm. I wasn't... um, My mum, so lovely, had no idea at all about any of this, um, was just exasperated by... Is that the right word? Yeah, was just... Well, I
0: don't know what you're about to say, but I think it think exa- make sense exa- there. She was exa-
1: yeah. completely exasperated me as a child because I left everything everywhere and I forgot everything all of the time and I didn't communicate with her about anything that I was supposed to do. If I needed cooking ingredients, if I needed my PE kit, if I needed to be somewhere at some time, I had an after-school thing. I didn't tell her because I wasn't mm. thinking about it. And she'd say to me, how does everybody else you've got a class of however many people how does every other child remember to do this and you don't and it's such a relief to be like oh here's how
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um and I think it's a similar thing when you're on stage and you're saying something and people go yeah that's and you, you just go oh like I, I think I have always had a bit of a longing to be on the same wavelength as other 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 people Mm. because it doesn't happen very often
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think last time we spoke um you were of the opinion that you thought you had thought you had ADHD and then you had decided that you didn't
1: um I might have done (laughs) I might have done that's a perfect answer
0: given the circumstances yeah I (laughs) might have
1: done that um and I think I think I was going backwards and forwards about it for a long time, for like a couple of years, about whether or not I thought I did, and maybe I don't, and then I'm not sure. And and a lot of it was that hyperactive thing of like I'm not hyperactive at all. In fact, I love being very still. Mm. Um, uh, but my my brain was. I think that's the big thing. Okay. Um, and ev- eventually, over like the last couple of months, basically my girlfriend turned around to me and was like, it, either you need to like look into this or you need to stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I was like, okay, well I'll, I'll do it then. And, um, and yeah, so I, I, I have an actual official sort of diagnosis, um, which is kind of, uh, a, a relief and a terrifying prospect. Um, But it's very interesting. It's interesting to look at my, the way I work now.
0: Before I let you go, are you happy?
1: (laughs) I am. I am very happy. I'm very, I'm I'm happier than I have been for many, uh, many years, I think. Um, I'm very well. And, um and I, I don't know what else to say I'm, I don't remember the last time anybody asked me if I was happy and uh, and the answer is yes but now the more I talk the more it might seem like I'm <laughs> then before I, you
0: talk yourself um, out of it <laughs> let's wrap up no,
1: I, I'm happy I'm very happy I'm happy I've got more houseplants than you could shake a stick at and is that not happiness
0: thanks old man <laughs> And that was Sarah Keyworth. Thank you so much to Sarah for coming onto the show. And thank you for listening. Oh, I tell you what. If you are listening to your podcast on Spotify, as many people are nowadays, just chuck a little star on it. You can do a little five-star review or something like that. That might help me bump up the rankings as plucky little ComCom uh, continues to stick its chin out in an ever-increasing um, wave of uh, of uh, other podcast content so you know you remember you were here seven years ago when i was pushing this stuff all the time well it's been seven years worth of everyone else starting a podcast since then so let's try and get back into the zone where we all go yeah let's really ruthlessly promote share and talk about the comedians comedian podcast why don't we do that thank you very much to nathan as well producer nathan for sorting out the show uh the music was by rob Mountain, your logger was the irrepressible moz and i will post Amble at you in just a second Speak to you soon. So I was going to say goodbye forever then, because I've started saying goodbye forever. And then someone made me aware, or i, I they didn't make me aware specifically, but uh, someone reminded me that uh, it's how Kitson signs off his mailing list, so I can't do that anymore. For me, saying goodbye forever is based on a character from a video game. It isn't Tekken. It's one with it's got more swords in it, but it's kind of Tekken 2 era. There's a character called Sophia who dresses like a Greek mythological hero. And she says it's the one that's got uh, transcending history in the world at the beginning of it as part of the voiceover. I can't give you any more than that. But this character Sophia used to say, I will never forget you when she uh, when she uh, murdered her opponent. And um, me and my friends for a time would say, I will never forget you. Goodbye forever. Um, Which is what I've always had in the back of my mind. But fair enough, uh, you don't want your ideas to get too careworn or um, uh, mistaken for someone else's ideas. So I will think of another sign-off. Now... I've got a little shout-out for you for next week's episode, which is with Kurt Brownoler, who you may know uh, as someone who, uh, years ago, I don't know how long ago, five, ten years ago, kick-started a campaign to uh, get a skywriter to write How Do I Land in the Sky? Um, Because he's into making kind of artistic, mischievous uh, comedic ideas and kind of um, intervening in people's lives. We'll talk about that. But he is also, it turns out, as well as being a fantastic uh, double-act host with Kristen Scharl of Hot Tub Time Machine in LA, and you you might have seen Kurt and Kristen together measuring the temperatures of people's crotches with a remote thermometer um, at the Edinburgh Festival some years ago, as well as all of that. Uh, Kurt is an excellent stand-up comic. He has a new uh, special out called Perfectly Stupid, and uh, he was also on Fallon and The Tonight Show. So if you're in a region that can access both Fallon and or The Tonight Show, and to be honest, it happened last night, I think. So by the time you hear this, it'll be clipped up on YouTube. Check him out. His special is fantastic. It's a really good episode and that is coming out next week. So other things uh, to mention in a postambular uh, fashion. It's mostly just book at the moment. All I've been doing in the last couple of weeks is is some, uh, some interesting and, and varied gigs that hover in that kind of weird um, threshold I have of being uh, sort of innovations rather than being gig gigs. But I don't want to do gig gigs as well. Um, do keep coming along if you're in the Bristol area to Chops on uh, a Tuesday night at Friendly Records in North Street in Bedminster. That is proving a pretty consistent source of... Um, Feeling like myself, I suppose, as I am not gigging over much at the moment. And uh, it's incredibly nice to walk into my friendly little comedy club and be able to work up uh, some little bits of material and uh, feel like I still have a hand in the game whilst I focus on... Other things at the moment and um, so come along to that other than that I've been so I've been innovating I've been writing my book and I've also been watching and very rarely do I spend any time bending your ear about a certain tv show but I have absolutely I'm not binged I've hoovered Mr in between uh, which is accessible via Disney plus and possibly other ways as well It's a show on FX and it's a guy called Scott Ryan who there's kind of an interesting backstory to it, whereby he made a movie on an absolute shoestring budget, which may be why the character is called Ray Shoestring, that's just occurred to me, um, but he did that about 10 years ago, and then tried to turn it into a series, and uh, couldn't, and kind sort of wasn't a professional actor or writer, so was just a taxi driver for a bit whilst trying to get this series made, and then he managed to get it made. Um, it came out a few years ago, I've only just discovered it through YouTube Shorts of all things, which normally just plays me endless 10-second clips of Peaky Blinders, a show which I've not seen and now do not need to. Um, But I thought I'd check it out. And it is just sensational. It is so beautifully written, beautifully shot, brilliantly acted. And um, it's like the sort of mundanity of the life of a hitman in uh, sort of urban and suburban Australia. And he is just overflowing with charisma. Um, The the writer and uh, uh, star of it are one and the same. And um, it's just amazing to see someone create a project for themselves in a really kind of just thoughtful kind of the pace is really slow there's it's very exciting bits it's a sort of hitman thing there's kind of thriller elements to it but you spend as much time on his relationship with his daughter and his ex and and the friends in his life as these as you sort of realize the kind of crushing uh, kind of loneliness and mundanity of uh, of a life in crime and I just I mean I cannot possibly do it justice. And the reason I'm particularly, I've been, I, it finished forever. He finished it after three series, which I absolutely respect as a move. Um, and it sticks the landing. It has one of the best endings to a series. I'm watching it thinking, oh, God, where is this going to go? How can it finish? Um, and the the finale is absolutely perfect. So please, if you have access to Disney Plus or other uh, means, then uh, tuck in. To Mister in between, they're only about twenty-three minutes long each, and I just rattled through them. I flew to Estonia for this wonderful kind of comic summary of a of a tech conference thing that I did last year. I did that again this year and had even more fun doing it. So thanks to everyone there. And on the plane on the way over, I had to do some very early starts where I just couldn't do any work on the plane because it was like two journeys of ninety minutes each to try and get to Tallinn, and uh, and so I just sort of sat there glued to Mr. In Between, So please watch that. Very rarely do I do kind of recommendations. I feel like I should be recommending other things going on in the world of comedy, but um, really all I've been doing is having my nose buried in a book of my own creation. So um, let's not say creation just yet. Attempted creation. No, we're committing to it, aren't we? Right, that reminds me, my next job, if you're on the mailing list, you're going to get another little nudge to add some unmissable moments because they are so useful for this process. And... um, And I hope that you are on the mailing list. If you're not, you get access to a... I think you still get a Zoom video of an Insiders-only session with James Acaster. So it's got to be worth doing for that. Also, I believe Acaster's um, Party Gator uh, music project is out soon. Is it? I feel like I retweeted something about it recently. So if you're... um, Or it's coming out soon, at least. So if you're a a big uh, Acaster fan and or a music fan and or a fan of someone who... Has sort of achieved loads of what they want to achieve and didn't stop there and just continued innovating and experimenting I've heard one of the tracks from it and it is just sumptuous and wildly unusual and unimaginable so keep an eye out for that as soon as I can point you to it I will. Uh, That's all for now thank you for listening and uh, next week it's Kurt and then there's a couple of other irons in the fire as well ooh, (laughs) irons